Hey, well, guys, um, everyone who's listening out there, uh, this is a podcast called Project A Plus. Um, we are a movie podcast, and we talk about movies, and we we feature some songs, some laughs, some uh, you know trenchant analysis. Uh, it's just a mix of brains and comedy, and um, this is perfect. It's like just great. It's like the perfect show. It's four qu- quadrant, you know. Hmm. It appeals to every demographic. When you address our listeners, like who do you, who pops into your head? Um, it's just like the uh, amalgamation of every single person on planet Earth. So someone of indeterminate gender uh, and race. <laughs> what about what about you? I'm kind of curious about our listenership because, on on your end at least, on your side of the uh, Pacific, is is anyone actually listening? And I'm, I'm including, like, the obligatory listens of, of people close to you. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> what about you? I think I feel like my brother's listenership has waned a little bit. Mm. I still I still think he's our only listener in, in terms of... <laughs> you should quiz him uh, onto the episodes. Yeah. We really should, after we become better at doing this, we should re-watch <laughs> it. Watch our other, another podcast that's not this. Oh, relaunch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Except... except have we gotten better? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like our last couple of episodes have been okay. Definitely better like the, the like the Fassbender series, where we just like we just sat there and like said things about the movies like intermittently. Oh god, that was awful. Yeah. yeah. So you know. Yeah, as much as I as much as I kind of resist uh, what this means for the podcast itself, we are better talking about like the apostles of the world, then we are talking about proper art aspects. <laughs> That's true. Privately, we can appreciate good art house cinema. Yeah. We just, but that's how we should, that's how we should do it. So that we have, we, we challenge ourselves to be better at articulating our opinions about it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. We should, we should work on our flaws. Until we're perfect beings. Clearly, uh, at least from my side of things, if I actually write notes... <laughs> much better. I wrote I wrote a lot of notes for Apostles, so let's see if that holds true with me. I I, I have nothing for, <laughs> for anything this them. week. Just wanted to just say that up front. Okay. Well, you should uh, you should uh, compensate by writing like ten pages of notes for the dirt <laughs> next week. Yeah. Um. But I've got to tell you about my, uh, a dream I had, which is the best part oh, of the podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> um. But I often espouse the viewpoint that. Dreams are, like, seldom of interest to anyone but the dreamer, right? Yeah. But I, I still have a weird dream all the time where I think, this has got to be interesting to someone else. And last night was, was an example of that. Okay, well, let's, let's hear it then. I'll be the standard for the audience reacting. I, I do think I have quite interesting dreams, and I, <laughs> I, to some extent. Is that something that you put on, like, your dating profiles? But I think, I think the key is uh, the way you actually retell the dream to people because mm. sometimes you can focus on things that it doesn't matter yeah. like to the other person like for example the, the common thing that people who have dreams which is a lot of people yeah yeah it turns out people who have dreams say is uh they talk about the the things that don't quite add up yeah. like uh i was in my house but it kind of wasn't my house it was kind of my workplace like that's a detail that doesn't matter to anybody you don't you don't need to clarify whether it was your house or your workplace or whatever. Yeah. 
But I was, I was going to justify the fact that I have good dreams by, the, by uh, the recent dream I had in which I was directing a short film in my family home. This one you already told me about. And as a favour to my family, Orson Welles was appearing. And it was like latter-day belligerent Orson Welles um, acting up as he does in those famous audio clips of him recording commercials for grape juice or mm. something. But I, I, as, I, as I told you, I stood up to him and I asserted my directorial intent despite his objections. Anyway, this dream, uh-huh. this particular dream I had last night, possibly influenced by the fact that I finished off a cask of wine, um, was uh, I was back at work, my previous workplace, which was a ostensibly a call centre. Uh-huh. And uh, someone called on, on my work phone, the actual landline phones in the office, and it was like an amalgamation of older male figures that I've known. Uh-huh. And he was like struggling to speak down the line and he told me he was he thinks he was having a heart attack and he needed the emergency services. I don't know why he called the office, but he did. Uh-huh. He obviously had my number somewhere. Um and I knew him, right? But I couldn't quite place his name or anything. So I didn't know his details to call the emergency services. So I was like, can you sorry and I was you know, I was embarrassed by like not knowing his name. So I was like, oh, just to make sure I have it spelt correctly, can you spell out your name for me mm-hmm. while he's trying to have a heart attack down the line? Um, and he did. He gave me his details, and I could barely hear hear through the phone line. So I was, like, writing down every, like, second letter or something, and it was just this garbled mess. And I, could, I didn't have his name. I didn't have the address properly. Uh-huh. And then I had, and then I realised I could turn up the volume on the phone, so I did. And I was like, sorry, I, I need you to go through all that again and spell out your details. Uh-huh. So he goes through the, the details again and I get it correctly. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay. And this has been like five minutes since he called and, and needed the emergency services. Like, okay, now I can call uh, the emergency services. Do you, do you want me to hang on the line with you? And he's really pissed off at this point. And he like screams me. He's like, no, no. So I hang up. Uh-huh. I call the emergency services. For some reason, this translates to a subcontractor not working direct. I mean, like being contracted by the government emergency services or whatever, uh, coming in person uh, to my office. Um, and then I, re- I realised halfway through this, this is not interesting. <laughs> I just proved you, my own you point. Gotta, I was like, this you got to finish now, buddy. This is really interesting to me. You got to finish. But it was like, a, all right, okay. I thought it was Kafka-esque, right? So, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway, so I had, I, um... I, the emergency service person came and they were like, oh, just, just so you know, I'm just a contractor. I'm not the person directly. I then pass on the message to the actual people who will send the emergency <laughs> services to their house. And I was like, okay, well, I've got the <laughs> details on this bit of paper. And it was like a really bit of flimsy, like tissue paper. Right. And I accidentally ripped it in half. Uh-huh. And, I, I, and, I, and the details weren't legible, separate. And then um, I, I was like, oh, I just have to sort out this this note I wrote because I can't read it anymore. So I was trying to piece it together. And then... Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's basically... <laughs> well, um... I could have sold that if I, if I maintained a certain level of confidence or even overconfidence. Sure. 
um, which which you know allows you to sort of relish the details and Except, yeah, if it, or if maybe you had like gone on a long uh, <laughs> digression into how oftentimes people tell really boring juice stories, <laughs> thereby like setting you up for the worst kind of failure. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, what are we doing today? Uh, we're doing two movies. One's called Apostle, and one's called Detour. Mm. So what? Let's. So what do you want to do first, Apostle or Detour? Uh, apostle, because Detour is more of a detour. Apostle, Jossel, Fossil, Mosel, Gossel, Fossil, Rossel, Zossel, Possil, Lossel, Mosel, Gospel, Fossil, Apostle, Rossel, Dospel, Gospel, Hospel, Sospel, Yospel, Possible, Waspel. Lucy Boynton in S S T S T O S T O S T O S T O S T L O S T L O S T L O S T L Puzzle 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 Apostle 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 is about a man. Cool. This seems to be some sort of scion or heir to an industrialist fortune or something like that. Cylon is how it's pronounced. Ah, uh, thank you. So he's a Cylon to some sort of uh, <laughs> industrial factory thing. Uh, I don't know. Uh, and he's like a heroin addict, or he's addicted to opium or something like that. You know, it's 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 set in the old timey, so it's set in the, the those old timey drugs. Uh, his father receives a letter that's like, we we this cult have kidnapped your daughter and uh, are gonna, you know, kill her unless you give us a bunch of money. Um, and so he, uh, cause his father is like a catatonic old, old bastard. Uh, he decides he'll take it upon himself to, I have to say, is it ever clear? Does he have the ransom? I really don't remember. Like it never, like they never show it. So, uh, let's just say that he takes it. Yes. So the, the, the plan that he works out with, I guess, someone, some guy uh, at his father's estate or yeah. some lawyer or something is that he will take the money and only hand it over to the cult once he's confirmed that his sister is still alive. Right, that's right. So uh, he goes to this island where this cult is, which is led by uh, Michael Sheen, and um, mm-hmm. he encounters some culty stuff. Uh, and he has to, you know, he, he's trying to seem like he poses someone, an initiate. Uh, and he is... Uh, he does it. He tries to save his sister. I don't know. There's a bunch of weird stuff on the island. Is that adequate? Mm-hmm. Is there anything else? So I think the best way to describe this is it's a sort of pagan horror film yeah. in the British tradition, like The Wicker Man. Yeah, like the, like if you've seen The Wicker Man, then uh, you kind of get what's going on here to some degree. I mean, it's not it's not a straight up rip of The Wicker Man, but it's it certainly leans a lot on that archetype. 
It's definitely indebted to the mood of it, let's say. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this sounds a lot more explicit about the the religion stuff as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's apostle. Uh, that that that's it. We're done. <laughs> We're done. All right. Uh, so this movie was directed by uh, Gareth. What if we just synopsize the film? <laughs> that would be great. That'd be a better podcast. It'd be shorter. <laughs> um, so um, this is directed by Gareth Evans, who uh, is a contemporary of um, the guy who directed uh, "The Night Comes for Us." Um, and so I was, I'm not having seen any of these previous features, which are mostly comprised of movies called The Raid, <laughs> to one degree or another. Um, he uh, made this movie. So I was kind of excited for that reason, because a lot of people like The Raid. I haven't seen it, uh, as we discussed on The Night Comes for Us. Um, Nor have I, but as I also discussed. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of a, uh, what do you call it? What's, what was the guy who directed, what directed Green Room? Jeremy Saulnier? It's kind of a Jerry Saulnier type of excitement where I was like, people like this work that he's made previously, so maybe this new film of his will be good. Or newish, rather. Yeah, I mean, this film and Gareth Evans himself slot into our apparent wheelhouse. <laughs> Which is uh, directors that have apparently shown some degree of talent, um, who have been given uh, money to fund their passion projects. Uh, yeah, and oftentimes they turn out bad. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just want to qualify me saying it's uh, our, our wheelhouse. I mean, we don't appreciate these films. <laughs> we just talk about them every week. <laughs> we do. <laughs> um, like your mutes. That's a good example. Your mutes, your anons. Yep. Your, uh, your whatever other ones. <laughs> triple your frontiers. Your Romas. <laughs> I do like lumping Roma in with all these films. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what, what else did you lump it in with? <laughs> <laughs> it kind of is in yeah. a way. It's it's like their it's like their Ur example. Yeah, it's just that it's a very different type of film. It's like the platonic ideal, right? <laughs> well, like all the other films have attempted to make elevated genre films. Essentially, <laughs> yeah, right. What Roma's on an elevated genre film? I guess the genre is pretentious art. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yes, this is an elevated genre film yeah. by a director who has something of a buzz about his work. Yes. So would you say that buzz uh, upon starting and then finishing the film Apostle uh, successfully was, let's say your body is an electrical circuit, okay? Yes. And sort of the currents outside of you uh, have induced a charge of Gareth, Edward, Edward, uh, Gareth Edwards... Gareth Evans? Gareth Evans. Evans. Into you, right? Mm-hmm. And then the movie has, like, a new part of the circuit being added. But we're not sure if the electricity is going to go past that part of the circuit or not. So my question for you, Hugh, is does the electricity go through that part of the circuit or does it stop uh, traveling around? <laughs> uh, my answer to that question is the electrical current, right? I'm following you. Appears at at a point that it might reach the other side and then it fizzles out. Hmm. That's my review. Okay. Which is all to say, I thought this was okay. Hmm. That's funny. I didn't mind it for probably the first two thirds. Hmm. And then I got pretty bored. Wow. That's that's uh, much more positive than, than my opinion, actually. 
Yeah, I didn't. I didn't actually mind it. Uh, I was. I was on board for the first two thirds. Mm. I didn't mind what it was going for, and I was like, "Yeah, I could go with this." But um, I think we we talked about this a little bit with Greta. Yeah. And uh, my feelings about the horror or horror adjacent genres, mm-hmm. like almost always, the the setup and the intrigue and the investigation is more interesting than the survival portion of it, right? There's not much you can do with, like, there's a lot of technique that you can employ in the setup segments. Yeah. But there's not that much you can do once it's everything's out in the open and it's just a question of survival one way or another mm. um, through violence. It's there's, there's not that much interesting stuff you can do with it unless that's the whole point of the thing, like something like The Raid, for example. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I, 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 I was sort of... Uh, reasonably happy to go along with it to a point and then I was pretty bored. How about you? I was pretty bored throughout actually. Mm. Like, there's the, I, I, like, the setup was like whatever um, but it just didn't really work at all at a D level for me. <laughs> I thought it was like uh, pretty dull. I didn't really care that much about the central like mystery at all. Well it wasn't really a mystery like it blows everything out of the water from the, the get-go really. Yeah. It's not like it's not like so the Wicker Man was so effective, I think, from memory. It's been a long time since I saw and it. And then seen it. I've seen the remake, so, you know. Because, you know, because the island seems uh, unassuming at first. That was on an island as well, wasn't it? Or was it just a little community in, in it the It was. Hills? It's a, it's an island off the course of, like, England, though, I think. And, you know, like, and, like, gradually the, the cop gets pulled into this uh, cult, you know. Whereas this, you know, from the get-go, we know it's an evil cult because they've sent, like, a ransom letter. Sure, sure. But, I mean, there is a, there's, like, a question of, like, well, is it, like, a, is it, you know, is there supernatural happenings or is it just, like, a secular uh, cult type thing? Yeah, but the, the supernatural stuff seemed pretty half-hearted, to be honest, yeah, by the end of this. But, I'm, but what I'm saying is that it wasn't engaging at all. No, but, yeah, I honestly didn't mind the, the setup stuff. Yeah, I just thought it was. It felt really uh, stock to me. I just didn't really, mm. didn't really care. Um, <laughs> I thought it could, uh, this movie really struck me as like a, it had a strange politics. I don't know if you agree with this or not. I th- I think I know what you mean, but go on. Because like, um, it really sort of is is setting up the the politics of this cult as like it almost seems like a parody of liberalism to a degree. <laughs> Where everyone's like, oh, it's like everyone's created equal and stuff like that. Like, that's the, the message that's being preached. The the socialist sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, and then that's put in direct contrast with the, the king, right? And which is also, like, tyrannical from the little bit that we see. These things, these sort of, two sort of, like, um, caricatured versions of political systems, right? Neither of which are that effective, which seemed a little, like, um, not, like, citrus, but it, it, the movie seemed to have a kind of a libertarian point of view, if I could argue that about a movie that's, that's like, a supernatural horror film. Because <laughs> really the only effective thing is when Dan Stevens is, like, working by himself, right? <laughs> like, hmm. the emphasis on his individuality really uh, kind of put me off a little bit. Especially in contrast to, like, the collectivism of the cult and... The you know unseen specter of uh, the imperial government. I did I did think it had some like kind of interesting imagery though. Uh, like I, I like the the like sort of 
uh, bit where he goes back into his room and there's all those like canisters of blood outside. Like I thought was like pretty weird and effective. Mm. Um, but those moments for me were really far, few and far between. I guess. Um, I must say, like the cinematography annoyed me a little bit. Me too. Um, and this is a problem I have with a lot of digital cinematography. Right. And I may be getting out of my depth, and someone, someone with more direct knowledge of how these things work could probably tear this down or, or um, argue it better than I can. Uh-huh. But uh, there seems to be a prevalent practice, at least in colour grading, which is, for, the, for listeners who may not be aware, is the process of correcting the colour balance in an image in post-production, which with digital you have a lot more flexibility to do than you could with celluloid right yeah you so essentially the way they shoot films uh digitally these days mm-hmm. um at least to my understanding is is essentially you shoot a very muted image yeah uh-huh. and then you color correct what you actually want yes and expose it in a particular way as well right. because you want to capture as much information as possible so you have that flexibility in post-production right uh-huh you're, yeah, you you can essentially do anything with the color balance, um, and we, we've seen extreme examples. But one thing that comes up all the time that I think looks genuinely terrible is desaturating some of the hues. Yeah. So it's essentially black and white or grayscale, like part of the image, and another part of the image has heightened color or at least normal color. Uh-huh. So like you get some flashback sequences where he's um he was having a confrontation in in China where he was a, a missionary or something. Oh, uh, that that part also struck me as kind of uh problematic. I guess to use that like cliche phrase. A lot of that sequence is is very desaturated but with um the highlights from the fire um creating sort of orange light on the side of their face. Sure. And I think it looks terrible. Like this it just looks really artificial and phony when you desaturate an image to that extent and then try and retain color in other hues it looks really computery and fake and not in a good way i'm sure you can do that as a sort of stylistic choice in some cases and it could work but not this one i see that all the time it really annoys me i I just thought the movie as a whole looked really drab and dull too part of that is obviously intentional but at the same time it was just like it just wasn't that interesting to look at no it wasn't and and i'm recycling what I said, I think, last week, <laughs> we did Triple Frontier in this sort of garbage, but I think it's sent, the word I keep coming back to for all these Netflix projects, even the ones that are slightly better than the other ones, is inessential. Yeah, for sure. I, w- I wouldn't mind if this film didn't exist. <laughs> Neither would I. <laughs> so. Are they, they're all sort of like, uh, I feel like all of them sort of, uh, this is like a sort of another track that they go down, which is they're all sort of like rehashes. They're all very like, uh, not to get into too much like, college stuff but they they all feel very postmodern to me and that the, the, these like thin sort of pastiches of like a mode or a genre or movie that you you know that you like uh the genuine article version of it mm. um and they all they all really feel like that way to me like triple frontier is like you know the like military throwers of Catherine bigelow and like tr- the treasure of the syria madre and stuff like that and then roma's like shitty flea and mm-hmm. um and neorealist films but uh, and I feel like this is maybe uh, could trace it back to Netflix's corporate structure in general, which is always predicated on giving people things that they think they want, right? Yes. And that's why they do so many reboots and remakes and stuff like that. And I feel like that falls into a lot of these movies as well, which all are sort of 
um, predicated on being yeah rehashes or if you want to be generous like homages to to classic works that you have fondness for and this case being like you know like Hammer and uh, horror films and uh, like The Wicker Man another pagan sort of themed works and it makes all the film really flat and dull in my opinion <laughs> you know I mean I think this is a larger problem in culture in general you know or at least like western culture um, I like the fact that it was set in Wales. I mean, that's what... <laughs> yeah. And um, Michael Sheen's Welsh, isn't he? He might actually be Welsh. Yeah, you're right. Let me have a look. Yes. Yes, he is. But I'm not sure, if the, I'm not sure uh, how Welsh his natural accent is. I have no idea. Because, I mean, he so often does other accents, so it's hard for me to even picture what he yeah. sounds like normally. Most commonly, he has the sort of uh, general British accent. Yeah. I don't think his accent would be as exaggerated as it is here, but he does a good Welsh accent, as you yeah. can imagine. Yeah, but presumably he's going for something that's a little more over the top, too. Um, I like the Welsh accent, actually, so I enjoy hearing it. Yeah, me too. It's nice. And uh, and Dan Stevens also grew up in Wales. What did you think of uh, Dan Stevens in it? Uh, I thought he was really bad. I thought he was okay. I didn't mind. I thought it was, it was just so like, twitchy, and um, it's it just it's just so affected. I would say it's pretty pretty one note, but all the same, I didn't find him particularly bad or anything. I thought he was fine enough in the role he was given. No, I just I just hated how twitchy he was. <laughs> that that always annoys me when actors are like, "I'm playing a drug addict, so I'm going to be really twitchy." I will say he actually did did a pretty good job with some of the more tortured uh, ye olde um, syntaxia to speak. The, the the time period of this movie was that was so strange too. Hmm. Like it's never identified in the film itself. I think in the description it said nineteen oh five, but that's like never made explicit. Uh, yeah, I just I was just like whatever. What did you think about the um, like supernatural stuff? We kind of already talked about how bleh it was, but just to deal with that element of the film too. Yeah, it, well, again, this is the 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 thing. Like it's it sets up things that could have gone in an interesting direction. Yeah, and then doesn't really know what to do with them by the end. No. We should explain that the the cult does actually have access to the supernatural in the, in the form of this uh, nature deity or something who controls the fertility of the soil yeah. through blood sacrifice, right? So they, they've been sacrificing little rabbits and stuff and wringing their necks into her mouth and they've uh, imprisoned her. And the, the key ritual of the cult uh, is like bleeding yourself for her nourishment. And uh, she started rebelling against the her captivity and has uh, poisoned the soil. Yeah. Um, and then uh, <laughs> it's kind of it's just dull at the end. It's just and then like I don't know. Like it's just it just doesn't go anywhere from that setup, which is kind of intriguing. Yeah. I think. I didn't mean, read it's kind of like a shitty environmentalist uh, metaphor to you too. <laughs> Yeah, probably, but yeah. Yeah, that's stupid. And to be honest, like, although I've poo-pooed the idea of the survival chunk of these type of horror films, mm. I probably would have preferred it if it was a straight-up battle to get out off the island with his sister from a certain point. Me too. Which it was promising to be, and I was kind of looking forward to, to some extent. Like, even if it just skewed or didn't, like, make explicit the, his, the supernatural stuff. And left some ambiguity there. Yeah. Or I wish I wish they had set up the infiltration angle a little bit more. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, because like it feels like that could be like a tense like setup for a plot. Like if you know that he's being like the slightest move would would give him away and stuff, and 
there's only like one scene that really works on that level. Yeah, like it was it was getting getting there, and, and it just kept pushing in the same direction. I think it would have been much more satisfying. So that yeah, the scene you're referring to, uh, particularly, there's this moment where they know that there's someone who's uh, a spy, yeah, or an infiltrator, and um, Michael Sheen is going through the men one by one, asking them to recite obscure verse from their weird religion <laughs> stupid bible yep and it's it's getting towards our protagonist who obviously won't know what to say but just before it gets to him the the guy before him turns out to be a spy as well and he sort of tries to restrain him and gets injured in process so it looks like he's on the side of the cult and he's earned you know brownie points yeah <laughs> Cult brownie points. <laughs> but then that, like, thread, mm. like, evaporates almost instantly. Yeah. Like, in the next scene, he's, like, found out pretty quickly. Like, so that that seemed like a setup to give him more time to infiltrate and stuff, and then that never eventually no. It just sort of, like, fizzles out. So it just seemed like a different film or something. Yeah, it was, like, so odd. But I would have preferred that film because I was qu- quite enjoying the infiltration stuff at the first. I definitely, I wasn't enjoying it, but it definitely wasn't, like, as torturous as some of the rest of the stuff. I would say this is like on the level of Triple Frontier, <laughs> in that it was slightly better than like Mute. <laughs> <laughs> so the the scale. What's on the other ones? That's that's what that's what ultimately our rating system should be. Is we assign value to each of the Netflix original movies that we have seen, and then, <laughs> which I guess means um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, High Flying Bird is is the highest score right now. <laughs> Yeah, it would be, I'd say. Yep. Um, yeah, that's a puzzle. I just thought it was really dull. I would definitely not recommend that you would watch it for... Uh... No, I wouldn't either. But um, if if someone was determined to watch, say, Mute or this, <laughs> I'd say watch if this. If you're in the video store. Actually, I don't know. I suppose you get, you get more lasting enjoyment from Mute because it's such a disaster. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely more memorable than this is, which is, like, fading from my mind, like, right now. I said earlier that if this didn't exist, it wouldn't matter. And also, similarly, if you erased my memory of watching this, it wouldn't matter. But yeah. I wouldn't necessarily want to erase Mute from existence. No, me neither. It's got, it brought us so much joy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess on that level... Maybe Mute is better. Yeah. Mute's definitely more... <laughs> Mute's the best. Mute's probably a, a less competent film than this is. Uh, certainly, yeah. But definitely more... There's definitely more to get out of you. I, I think what's frustrating about this film oh. is that I can see a model for how this could work with Netflix. For sure. Because you've got a director like Gareth Evans who makes, supposedly, we, I guess we haven't seen them yet, but high-quality genre action films. Yeah. And giving him an outlet in in the Netflix environment seems kind of ideal. Like, we've got, like, a competent craftsman. Yeah. Let's give him an interesting project and distribute it through Netflix. That seems like... Yeah, I think if it just, like, slash his budget a bit, it'd be better. Yeah. I wonder I wonder what the, uh, the, the like, the Irishman's going to be the big test for this, right? Because they can make Martin Scorsese bad, then. <laughs> yes. Well... <sighs> I, I, sometimes I forget that this is actually part of it, but I can't believe that 50% of that movie is digitally de-aged. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, you know, I was pretty skeptical, but uh, if it has a similar, if it's like this similar VFX team as Captain Marvel, I think it'll be fine. I think it's a misfire even if it was perfect, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, sure, it's a it's misfire conce- conceptually. I mean, 
Robert De Niro himself famously played young Marlon Brando, so effectively in The Godfather Part Two. What I what I would like though is someone to go even further than this, which I think is too far. And <laughs> put Robert De Niro's face on a baby. Yeah, to like to char- like you know like the equivalent of um, Boyhood. Yeah. But just like de aging like a forty year old man <laughs> from a child to adulthood. Maybe hey maybe that's what it'll be in uh in in uh, the Irishman you don't know. I would love that so much. What what really uh, is they should make a remake of Clifford with this uh, technology. Yes. Yes. The form that we need. (laughs) Okay. So, Apostle, how many points of our of our five pointed star would you give it? Oh, that's a tricky one. Probably two point five. Again. I think I would give it between one and a half and two star two points. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think I enjoyed it more than. Yeah, I I thought this was pretty insufferable. I hated how long it was too. It was long. Yeah. You could have cut out like 30 minutes and I would have felt exactly the same from it. I think it would have been significantly better with 30 minutes cut out, in fact. You scared of some of the boring parts. Just cut out the flab of the end. And cut out that flashback. Slump. The flashbacks in general. Yeah. Mm, okay. So uh, are you ready to take a detour into our next film? Which is called Detour. We're on a detour, baby. Detour. Baby, your illness detours the cure. Come on, baby. Don't be such a bore. There's no prize for being demure. So just hop in my hands and let's go on a detour. 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 Why? Yes. I'm a bore. Don't like this door. How many balls I got? Well, four. <clears throat> so Detour is a 1945 film noir uh, picture produced by one of the Poverty Row Studios, PRC, uh-huh. um, who produced largely low-budget B-movies or exclusively low-budget B-movies. And it was directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. We'll talk a little bit more about him uh, in our discussion. Sure. But the film concerns a pianist mm. who is traveling from New York to uh, L.A. to marry his girlfriend. And um, he's got no money, so he's hitchhiking. And uh, he gets picked up by a bookkeeper who turns out to be ill and apparently passes out or dies in the car and when he opens the car door to to check on him he falls out and hits his head on a rock so one way or another he he gets accidentally killed now he realizes how incriminating the the setup looks for him the pianist that is so he decides to uh take the bookkeeper's identity so he, he steals his clothes he gets back in the car and he throws all his old possessions out with the dead guy and leaves him by the highway mm-hmm. behind a bush now then he uh picks up another hitchhiker himself who turns out to be a woman who was previously in the car with the bookkeeper so she knows that he's not the real deal and uh, she's a bit of a crooked character so she basically manipulates him from that point uh-huh. uh so the bookkeeper's father is about to die they discover in the paper yes and uh she comes up with the plan to get 
the pianist to impersonate, continue impersonating the bookkeeper so he can inherit the money because the the bookkeeper hadn't seen his father for like 15 years. So I guess it's broadly plausible that he could have done it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the rest of the film is them sort of arguing about about how they're going to do this scheme or not do this scheme. Uh, I don't know if I should spoil the the rest of it. Sure but, it doesn't, uh, doesn't happen. It doesn't end up that well. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think about Detour? No. Yeah. I already no, did it. It's too late. It it's too late. Hunter, what did you think nope. about... I'm not going to answer. You have to answer. <laughs> you want me to answer first? Yeah. What did you think about Detour? Um, so I watched this in uh, university. It's part of my cinema studies course. Um, and uh, I wasn't sure if I remembered it that well, but then when I watched it again, I remembered I did remember it. Okay. If that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, it did. It does. I was like, ah, oh, it's this... It's the... You remembered more of it than you thought you would have. Yeah, the telephone cord around the neck film. I do remember. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually really enjoyed watching this again. I appreciated it more than I did the first time. That's good. Uh, I think it's a it's a great film noir. I think it's one of the yeah. best film noirs in a way because it's such an uber example. Yeah, it just feels so distilled down to the essences. Yeah, and I think I think Anne Savage is the greatest femme fatale that's ever Whoa. been on celluloid. Even better than like uh, Barbara Stanwyck. I love Barbara Stanwyck, but yes. Wow, that's that's um, that's a bold thing to say. I think she she steals the film. She does, and is is captivating from the moment she steps into frame. I do like how um, I mean I feel like a lot of the the film fatal like uh, appeal of them is that they exude like this like sexual power. Mm. <laughs> it's not so much the case here, which is interesting, or at least he uh, the main character resists her more than like say. Uh, What's his name in Double Dividend? Yeah, it's it's not so much that he's like so beguiled by her yeah. um, beauty or anything like that. Um, and in fact, it's more the other way around that she tries to seduce him at a couple yeah, of points. Yeah, she, she propositions him and fails multiply. It's more that like she's just able to walk all over him, essentially. Yeah. It's crazy like how much he disappears. Yeah. I mean, she does have power, like the legitimate power over him based on the fact that she was in the car previously. Yeah, like material power. Yeah, for sure. And she has, like, evidence to blackmail him. Yeah. She's also able to easily manipulate him. Yes. Yeah. But, like, that initial scene when she first suddenly confronts him about the fact that he's not who he's claiming to be, and they have this rapid-fire exchange, or her side of it is particularly rapid-fire. Yeah. That is... It's great. One of the best dialogue sequences even exceeding the best screwball comedy scenes, yeah, it's, it's I think. pretty great. It's so rapid and vicious yeah. and fast. Yeah. Rapid and fast. Two great synonyms. <laughs> you did it, buddy. It's funny that I watched this so soon after watching her in uh, My Winnipeg. It's so funny. I didn't know that she was in My Winnipeg when I when I watched mm. it. Um, I'd never seen before. And she's great in that. She is great in that. And Tom Neal, I think, is effective yeah, I, I agree. Uh, for what the role requires. I agree. Like, he's very good at looking downbeat. Yeah, and stupid. part of the reason why maybe he's so convincing is that <laughs> in his own life, he was uh, convicted for involuntary manslaughter. <laughs> really? <laughs> for probably killing his wife. <laughs> Yikes. Wow. So she was discovered... Uh, she was shot, right? Oh. And he ran and fled the scene. Uh-huh. And then I think later turned himself in or something or was captured. And then he explained that they had a struggle and she had a gun. Uh-huh. And the gun went off and shot <laughs> it's her. It's unbelievable. It was his defense. So. 
Wow. There you go. I mean, that was, I guess, um, somewhat after this film was made. He only served uh, six years in prison. There you go. It happened, what, in... Uh, in 65. 20 years after this film. So are exculpated from any guilt, is what you're saying. Yeah. So it has the typical goofy, hard-boiled narration. Yeah. Made especially goofy by the the like the way that it's depicted, which is like not like um, Double Indemnity, which I've never seen, but if I understand the plot device correctly, he's like typing it out, right, as part of his insurance report. That's right. Where in this, he's just sitting in a diner and like staring at the camera, or, or he's not looking into the camera directly, but he's staring like a off off camera and like making funny facial expressions while he's thinking about it. He's also addressing the audience directly. In yeah, the he is. But um, I, I I liked. I liked the trashy kind of aesthetic of this. It kind of reminded me of like Lolita a little bit, the the way in, in which like the a lot of the uh, elements of the film seem like, you know, like pulled straightly from his subconsciousness, you know, as opposed to like any factual recording of what's happened. Yeah, and I guess that the suggestion here is because he like talks about these two highly unlikely situations of involuntary manslaughter. The suggestion is that there's some subconscious desire in him to kill both of the people. Or, or in fact, that he is guilty and he's persuaded himself that, that too. both of them were involuntary. Either way, like that, it doesn't really matter what the truth is. It's it's part of the joy of the film, yeah, I think. Yeah, for sure. That it leaves it ambiguous. Edgar G. Ulmer is a German expat, right? Yeah. And he's employing some German expressionistic techniques um, that he previously employed in The Black Cat, which was a universal horror picture. And he, was a, he was a set designer, apparently. He was. He worked with Murnau on Sunrise, in fact, and other films, and uh, apparently pioneered the Dolly. He also co-directed uh, the first film that uh, Billy Wilder ever wrote. Yeah, People on Sunday. Or Minchin Am Sontag. Basically, everyone who worked on that film went on to have relatively uh, noteworthy careers. Yeah, like Robert Sidemark. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so there's great moments in Detour where you were sort of talking about that sh- shot where it's showing his face in the diner. Yeah while the narration is playing and they often like switch the lighting in the same shot uh to give an idea of his interior world it's very impressionistic and there's also this great moment where he uses like a massive prop of a a coffee cup for this like ludicrous sort of perspective shot (laughs) yeah i really like the way the the opening and the end play out as like weird sort of like dream logic scapes almost i mean the whole whole movie is sort of like uh, it, it definitely has like sort of a somnambulant or um, uh, unconscious quality about it, I think. Yeah. Which is very enjoyable, for sure. Apparently it's based on a novel. It is, yeah. Um, by the guy who made the, who also wrote the screenplay. He wrote, apparently he wrote like a, a long screenplay and they whittled it down considerably. That's interesting. It's cut to its essence, like yeah. it really, which I really enjoy, like you're, you're in, you're in the film straight away. I guess Apostle does that a little bit. Uh, but Apostle definitely doesn't feel... I mean, like you said, the opening sections, it feels like it's it's being, like, cut down, but uh, when they get to the island, it feels very uh, expanded. Yeah, but I mean, like, the initial setup of, like, we we haven't met the protagonist before. He's already Yeah, he's way. already being thrown into this, this mess. But um, and it also has, like, an existential framing as opposed to, like, traditional methods of character identification. Hmm. So Apostle is probably as good as D2, as always. Yeah, that's, that's also what I'm saying. Um, but yeah, it just has this great uh, atmosphere. It just it, it like the I really love the um, 
uh, hyper artificial like driving sequences especially like the weird juxtaposition between like the bits that are like obviously back projected and the stuff that's obviously shot you know on location despite the fact that he did he did have a thwarted kind of career as a, a more high-end director uh-huh. most critics sort of agree that edgar g Olmo was kind of at his best when he was given such limitations as this right and i especially really enjoyed the obvious ways around the budget limitations where they have to shoot like a walking scene in a city and they just cover the entire set in fog. Yeah, I know, that, that part's great. And change the street lights, the street signs a couple of times. It's really effective, but it's funny. It, it, it works in terms of like uh, the narrative structure as well, because obviously it, this is like his memory of it versus like the, the physical event that's happening. I'd be, I'd be really interested to see some of his other movies, though. I mean, none of them have had quite the same acclaim as, as this does. The Black Cat's supposed to be good, and... He also had a career making so-called race pictures. Oh, yeah, I, I read a little bit about that, like Moon Over Harlem, for instance. Yeah, and a bunch of Yiddish films as well. Oh, really? That's so interesting. Definitely uh, uh, someone to keep your eye on. Yeah, I think the, the best way of describing this is like as a pure distillation, like a little shot glass of noir. <laughs> yeah, and it's, I mean, it's just so short that it's hard to like, I don't know, it's hard not to enjoy it, I think. If you can get on the wavelength, if you like noir movies, it's like a it's a tough one to resist for sure. Um, and I, I liked all the. I mean, this is obviously not. Uh, this is not like a. It's like a neutral quality, but I I, I enjoy how much of like the uh, atmosphere of the nineteen uh, forties that you get into too. Like when they go to like the the drive-in and stuff like that. And the car dealership and yeah. Yeah. Did you notice the continuity errors? No, not really. But I always have. I don't. I have a lot of. Uh, I don't really have an eye for that sort of thing. So. Yeah, I didn't notice as well, but this, I mean, I guess for me, it's somewhat more forgivable because um, he's hitchhiking on the other side of the road because they flipped the negative. Oh, yeah. No, you know, that now that you say that, there is one shot where I definitely noticed that he was driving on the wrong side of the road, too. I think that's really strange. Yeah, which I didn't notice at all. Uh, <laughs> but you do notice, like, there's a bunch of shots that are kind of out of focus and stuff yeah. like that and that are a bit shaky. Yeah. He famously prioritised the narrative over continuity and obviously they didn't have the resources to reshoot anything so yeah he didn't have any problems flipping the negative for, yeah. <laughs> for those hitchhiking scenes because it helped the flow of the editing or something. yeah sure for sure all the spatial orientation of the scene so done now I, I think it's highly recommended for anyone's interested in that era of hollywood we gotta do our we gotta do our patented point system uh, though I think I think it would be great if we did switch over to a uh, Netflix original rating system. Better than mute, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> D2 is better than mute. Put it on the criterion list. Let's do it. Uh, I think four to four and a half stars for me. Points. I'd give it four and a half to f- even five points, potentially. But, but Hugh, Hugh, keep in mind that the highest rating for us is not five points of a star. It is the entire star. It's a star. Yeah, the entire star. This is close to an entire star film. Yeah, for me, I would say it's a solid, f- maybe four and a half to five points. But it's a film that I, I definitely like watch and respect it, and I don't know. I don't know how much it like really gets under my skin, you know. Which is like where the where I give the highest rating to to films that do that. I would give it. I potentially give it like a full star for Anne Savage alone. Really, she is really great. Okay, now you got to do bonus features. 
Uh, do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? Bonus features. No, you're already going to play this song. You don't have to sing it. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. So I watched a film called The Hunter for Journey, which uh, uh, I watched with my girlfriend. Did not. It was fine. I don't even. It's like a food movie. A food movie? Yeah, about an Indian family that immigrates to rural France and opens up a restaurant. Um, but it's not as bad as like I feel like that uh, sort of heartwarming description makes it sound. But uh, you know, it's 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 fun. And then the other only other only movie I watched is a film called Ashes Purest White by uh, the Chinese director Zha Zhangqi, um, which I I really loved, uh, and I highly recommend that anyone who has an opportunity to see it track it down. Uh, it's this sort of generation-spanning movie about um, this man and this woman who live on the uh, fringes of like the Chinese underworld, um, and uh, one of them goes to jail for a long time because uh, of a gun possession charge. And when she gets out, she tries to find the man. It's just about her attempting to reconcile with the past and. It's just really great. It just it's this really great checking of the geographical and temporal changes that have rocked China, and it is has a really amazing performance by Zhao Tao, who plays the main woman, and I thought it was uh, really brilliant. And if you can see it, it's probably my fa- favorite last shot of any movie I've seen in quite a long time. Um, so. Do you know what put me off? What um, seeing this uh-huh. from your description? Uh-huh. Was the the term generation span? <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's great. Yeah, I just, I I don't like generation just, span. Just fucking watch it. It's good. You'll like it. All right. I probably yeah. will. Yeah. All right. So, what did you watch? What did I watch? Uh so so I I signed up for a new streaming service <laughs> for one of those thirty day trials uh, that I've previously used in the in the past, previously. In the past, another great tautology yeah, yeah. from your host. Um, and I just used like a different email address and stuff. Uh-huh. So got another 30 days. And the, the, the single reason I signed up for this service, although it had a bunch of other films to catch up on, such as the Marvel films for our forthcoming special. Uh-huh. But the single reason that convinced me to sign up for this service, if fraudulently, was to watch the film Music and Lyrics. Uh-huh. The romantic comedy starring Drew Barrymore and um, Hugh Grant, my namesake, mm-hmm. which was very enjoyable, I will say. Uh-huh. Never seen it, never will. So there you go. So it's basically the perfect film for me because it's a, it's a goofy romantic comedy of a certain vintage. Uh-huh. And it's about songwriting. Come on. Great stuff. It's perfect. So it's the story of uh, Hugh Grant, who's a washed-up um, 80s pop star, who gets an offer from a young starlet to write a song. Oh. But he's no good at writing lyrics. Oh, no. And then he discovers that his houseplant waterer person can write great lyrics, and she's Drew Barrymore. Wow. And they write a song together. Uh, anyway, so when I, found, when, when I queued this up on my TV over my bed... Mm-hmm. And I had my box of wine, and what was I eating? Some junk food. Uh-huh. 
And I think for a time, I've never been as purely happy in my entire life as, as That's watching that film. Okay. It's a good film. Uh, then I, I decided to rewatch When Harry Met Sally. Because uh-huh. it's always held up as like the pinnacle of latter day yeah. uh, romantic comedy films. At least it's the most like archetypical one. Yeah. But also it's, it's often regarded as uh, a high point of that particular genre. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl I Reiner? Know. I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct, no, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl I Reiner? Know. I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct, no, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time time will prove me correctly. I, I know what I said. And I know what you said, too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by... Uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl Reiner? Know. I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct, no, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time time will prove me correctly. I, I know what I said. And I know what you said, too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by... Uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl Reiner? I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct, no, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time time will prove me correctly. I, I know what I said. And I know what you said, too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl Reiner? I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct, no, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl Reiner? I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct. No, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time time will prove me correctly. I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl Reiner? I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct. No, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl Reiner? I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct, no, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl Reiner? I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct, no, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl Reiner? I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct. No, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, 
Uh, it was Roadrunner, right? Or was it was Kyle Runner. I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct. No, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, no, I think you said the reverse. No. Time. Time will prove me correctly. I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by. Uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it was Kyle Runner. I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct. No, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I know what I said. And I know what you said, too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by... Uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl no, Reiner? No. I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct, no, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I know what I said. And I know what you said, too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl no, Reiner? No. I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct, no, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh, it was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl no, Reiner? No. I always forget. I think it's Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct. No, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh... Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh... It was Rob Reiner, right? Or was it Carl no, Reiner? No. I always forget. I think it was Rob Reiner. Let's have a look. It's direct. No, it's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron. That's what I said. Uh, I think you said the reverse. No. Time, time will prove me correctly. I, I, I know what I said. And I know what you said too. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by, uh... But anyway, it is, it is good, and it does, like, codify a lot of the elements of 90s uh, rom-coms. So it was, it was heavily influential. Uh-huh. But I've always found it a little flat, to be honest. It's fine. I, it's one of those things like I, I don't like the the thread in romantic comedies of men and women can't be friends. Me neither. Friend zone nonsense. Yeah, it's it's pretty stupid. And uh, I mean, not to not to in, invoke 
the W word, but... Uh, the W word? It's an example of why a film like Annie Hall is inherently more satisfying than When Harry Met Sally. Now, I watched uh, My Best Friend's Wedding, directed by Australia's own PJ Hogan, mm. which is actually something of a subversive uh-huh. uh, rom-com because it essentially has the gloss and sheen and uh, sets up a lot of the tropes of your typical romantic comedy of the era and stars Julia Robert, Julia Roberts, but is, in fact, ultimately just about the friendship between Julia Roberts and Rupert Everett. Uh-huh. And... A spoiler is that she doesn't actually get the guy in the end. So the whole setup is that. Then I watched Moonlight. Oh, that's a good movie. Yeah, so that was also on the streaming service. And I actually preferred it to uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. Interesting. Uh, I kind of see some of the same sort of issues, maybe, but I didn't mind them as much here. And I think that his style suited this particular narrative a bit better than it did if Beale Street could talk, because this is such a personal story Yeah. that his style was really in simpatico with the story and the narrative. And, yeah, I, I, actually, I, actually, I actually thought it was yes, pretty interesting, pretty good. One of the best, best picture winners, I think. Yeah, I think it was a worthy best picture winner from the other contenders I saw. It was better than La La Land, yeah. Okay. Even though I enjoyed that as well. The one other film I watched was Terrence Malick's Song to Song uh-huh. from 2017, <laughs> which is terrible. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's the sort of thing where, like, the difference between, uh, certainly in this era, the difference between a great Malick film and a terrible Malick film probably isn't that great in terms of the actual components sure. of the film. Like, it may... They may be quite similar in many ways, and it seems like it could go either way at points. But apparently he's going to get back to doing um, normal movies. Yeah, I heard his latest one had more of a straightforward script and stuff. Yeah. We'll see. But anyway, uh, so song, yeah, song to Song is the story of, like... But she also had a relationship with Michael Fassbender or sometimes you, cheats on... You sound like you do not care, <laughs> I have to say. Ryan Gosling, yeah, that's that's the film, is not caring <laughs> about these people for two and a half hours or whatever it is. It's it's a it's an atrocious film, I would say. <laughs> wow. Well, I really liked his previous one, so I'm sure I'll like Song to Song too. <sighs> and I, I do respect Malik, but I, I think when it goes wrong, it goes wrong. It's funny, like, it works when you're doing this kind of pretentious lyrical stuff. 